Please open with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 1 this morning. We will be looking in chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. You'll recall last week we began this section that kind of goes from verse 5 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2 and we focus then today on verses 8 through 10. The title of the message is The Truth About Sin and Righteousness. The truth about sin and righteousness. John's epistle is so very helpful because he has this clarity. He writes with this precision and this helpful balance about the truth of our sin. That that we still fight and will commit sin. That we fight the nature of sin. That we are called to pursue holiness. That we are called to walk in the truth that Christ has redeemed us. So, So John gives this clarity to both of these ideas that there is sin, that it is a battle, but nevertheless, we are called to pursue righteousness. John has this this great extreme Christological focus. We we know that all the authors of Scripture focus and, and turn us back to Christ, but John does it in such a remarkable way. This beloved apostle Uh, of our blessed Savior and His earthly ministry, He's just always turning us back to Christ. Even as we focus on our sin, He then comes and tells us, if you confess your sin, Christ will forgive. And so in the three verses today that we'll see, that is the focus. That the sin of man, the sinfulness of man, but also the glorious, saving, cleansing work of Christ. And just a note before we read our text, John writes a couple verses here, verses 8 and 10, that sound kind of similar, but really he's, he's speaking of different ideas. He's writing of the indwelling sin of man and the outworking of our committing of sin. So it's the heart and the deed, what is within, and then what flows out. So with that note, let's look at our text. I want to read again verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, just to give us the context of everything around this. Would you please, if you're able, stand with me as we read Holy Scripture. This is God's Word. It's holy. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And it's inspired by God. This is God speaking to us as His people. 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, 
and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is God's word. It is given and written for our sanctification. So may he write his truth upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's join together and go before the Lord in prayer. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who is holy, holy, holy. Lord, the whole earth is full of your glory. It is declaring your great strength, your might, your power, your wisdom. Lord, the world also declares how you hate sin. We, we see that in and how our bodies break down, and how things are going from bad to worse. Lord, because you are holy and righteous, you will not stand by and allow sin to go unpunished. And so it's with that understanding that we come before you, and we realize that we are beggars. We are those who are in desperate need of your grace. Lord, for we cannot merit or earn, or ever deserve forgiveness, cleansing of sin, the imputation of righteousness. None of that could ever happen in our own flesh. Oh God, how great is your mercy in Christ. How great is the reminder that even if we sin, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for our sins, the one who laid down his life upon the cross. Lord, may we look to that glorious Savior today. As we study your word, it is our prayer and our great desire that you would show us Christ. That you would point us to Christ. That you would conform us to Christ. As Jesus prayed, Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. From your word may we know and grow in fellowship with you. Lord, it's eternal life that we would know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we know you, Lord, through your word, through your revealed truth. Lord, as we come to the time of the teaching and the preaching of your word, we just have to acknowledge that our efforts would never suffice. The strength of men will fall utterly short of the task before us. Lord, if we would learn from your word, if we would be sanctified by your word, it must be a work of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, would you press your spirit upon us to open our blind eyes, to show us our sin, to reveal to us where we have broken your law, to bring us to the point of brokenness that leads to repentance and confession and the changing and transformation of our lives. Lord, that is but a miraculous work that only you can accomplish. None of us can make that happen. Only you, Lord. 
only you. And Lord, if you do make that happen, we pray that all praise and honor and glory would be to your great name. May we not try to take credit for our sanctification, for it is but your grace at work in us. Lord, it's our prayer and our desire that you would receive all the glory from our time together today. We ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are humbled and eager and ready to receive and apply the truth. Lord, give us hearts that are hungry for the truth. Give us hearts that are sustained by the truth. And, O oh, great and gracious God, give us lives that are transformed by the truth. Lift our eyes, lift our gaze to Christ today. May he be the focus of our hearts and our minds. May he receive the glory due to him from his church. He is the king, immortal, invisible, blessed forever. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So to begin this morning, I want to just reset, recall the, the context of what we're looking at here in these few verses, 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is where we're seeing a holy God, a sinful people, and a faithful Savior. John began last time by telling us of the holiness of God, that, that God is light that we are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We are to be holy just as the one who called us is holy. Verses 8 through 10 are kind of like a balance to that, if you will, because we're called to walk in the light, we're called to be holy. And then John reminds us that, yes, we're called to do this, but you are a sinner. You will fight and you will battle against this nature even though you have victory in the Lord. You're a new creature, but that old nature still wages war against you. So you must confess your sins. And when you confess, He is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we must know that we have this old nature, and we must often, daily, continually be confessors of sin. And then we kind of come to the climax of this section in chapter 2. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Dear friend, one thing that becomes a danger when we talk so often and so bluntly about confession and repentance is that we almost would take this section of Scripture to be a, a section that points us to free grace. That is, you're told you must confess sin, you are a sinner, you will continue to battle in sin, and then the flesh in us says, well, just go ahead and walk in your sin. John says, no, writing these things so that you won't sin. I'm writing these things so that when you do sin, though you make war against it, you will remember you have an advocate. You have a defense attorney. You have one who sits at the right hand of God Almighty interceding on your behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
So dear friends, we are called to battle sin, to make war, to confess our sin when we fail. Then you're called to do that with this blessed assurance that Christ ever stands to defend you because you're washed in his blood, because you're made alive in him, because his righteousness is credited to your account. John writes, so that we do not abuse Christ's advocacy, that we have this great assurance because of his advocacy. So narrowing in on verses 8 and 10, our task and text for today. John's goal is to make clear this destructive deceit that is in those even who are redeemed who want to try to claim that they are without sin whether denying total depravity or denying that there is lifelong progressive sanctification and saying, I'm in Christ, so I am now perfected. John says, no, that is destructive. That is deceitful. That denies the Lord. That denies even the work of Christ. This text is the Lord's balance against legalism and against perfectionism, but it's also a balance against lawlessness because we're reminded of the need to confess our sins, and that reminds us of the cost of our sin. Christ's life and work are really the hinge points of this text. He lived for a purpose. He died as a substitutionary sacrifice for a purpose, and that is that because we are sinners, our salvation requires both the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Christ. We'll see that as we get into verse 9. It's so plain and so clear. This text shows us that Christ is faithful and righteous. He is willing and able to forgive your sin, and that is so hopeful. That should produce so much joy and assurance because your forgiveness does not rely on what you can do or accomplish. You confess your sins and then you have this great hope that it's the faithful, righteous Savior who forgives you and who makes you righteous. Our response to that as seen in this text is that we must admit our sinfulness We must come to him in faith and repentance, and we must seek to live out that internal cleansing of the work of Christ. It's kind of the focus here as we zero in on the text. We must admit our sinfulness. We must come in faith and repentance to Christ, and then we must live out that which Christ has worked within. There are two goals in the text, to recognize our sinfulness and flee from it, and to realize and to understand Christ's faithfulness to forgive. Again, it's just, you you see the wisdom of God and, and the powerful working and inspiration of the Spirit in the writing of this text because there is perfect balance to the battle of sin and the faithfulness of Christ. So let's begin. We're going to look at verses 8 and 10 before we come to verse 9. We'll begin at verse 8. I want to see the deceiving, the destructive effects of personal deception. John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, so again, just an explanation briefly at the outset of the difference between verses 8 and 10. Verse 8 
if we say that we have no sin, sin is a noun. This is speaking to the nature of man. If, so it's as though we say we don't have a sin nature. In verse 10, it's, it's action. Sin is a verb if we say that we have not sin. So that is the committing of sin. And so that's what separates verses 8 and 10. One is the nature, one is the action. So let's look at the statement in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin. If we say we have no sin. Calvin's helpful here. He said, by the word sin, it's meant here not only corrupt and vicious inclination, but any fault or sinful act, which really renders us guilty before God. Effectively, it's not just your vile wickedness that shows your sin nature. It's any, even what we would consider a quote-unquote small sin. Even those show our sinful nature. So it's not just the the Adolf Hitlers that we would see as, as depraved and given over to the sin nature. It's every act of sin reveals that former nature even for the believer in Christ. Paul would say it this way in Romans 5, verse verse 12. He said, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He continued in Romans 5, verses 15 through 19, by the transgression of the one, many died. By the transgression of one, death reigned. Through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So so we can just stop right here and acknowledge that, as we read earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, The transgression of Adam is credited to us all. We are his heirs. We take in his nature at conception. We are sinners by nature. Now this claim then, we have no sin. If we say that we have no sin, there there are really two types of people who will make this argument. We need to understand them both. One is easy to refute. One is still easy to refute, but maybe a little more challenging. There's one group of people one form, especially in the, maybe the opposite side of the Southern Baptist Church, who would deny the, the doctrine of total depravity. They would say, no, we don't have sin at birth. We are by nature good. And of course, that goes against Scripture, and you need to see nothing more than a, the life of a child to understand that. Look at the temper tantrum of a small baby. Look at the lies and deceit and deception, the bad temper, the anger, the lack of self-control in a child, and you understand that we are born with a sin nature. To say that we have no sin goes against that nature that is so obvious and apparent. But there's another form of this argument that is made, maybe not in circles as close to us, But it's this idea that once you're saved, you are then effectively made perfect. Your salvation is complete in this life, and you just walk in righteousness. Now, we're called to live in righteousness, so we need to handle this extremely carefully. We're given a new nature in Christ, so we need to understand this very clearly. But we must understand that our salvation, the sanctifying work of God, 
is not completed in this life. Now, the flip side of that is to understand the Apostle Paul's words. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. You are a new creation. You are made alive in Christ. So there is this biblical truth to which we must hold closely and tightly that the nature of sin is, is dead. It's gone. Its power over us is released. And so as we talk about this, we need to make clear that our sin nature is never a crutch for a lack of progress in godliness. Okay, so that, that's really the balance to this that, that we must have clear, is that we do have a sin nature. We will battle it until we're made perfect in Christ. But that nature is not a crutch to not be sanctified. It is that nature that holds you back, but it's because you go back to that nature. It's because you allow yourself to be tempted and to fall prey to temptation and to walk into sin. That old nature is no longer master. You have a new master, and it is Christ. You have a new nature, and it is the Spirit living within you. But, dear friends, think about what John says. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. In Romans 7, Paul says, I'm doing the very thing I do not want. And then I am no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That's not somebody who is free completely and perfectly from sin. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was saved when he wrote Romans 7. And yet he said, it's the sin that's still in me that causes me to walk. In ungodliness. Though we have victory in Christ, though there is this new nature given at the moment of salvation, we still battle the old nature. We still battle against sin. And you don't have full victory over that nature until you go to heaven and you're made like Christ. Because as John will write, you will see him as he is. That we're no longer dominated by the sin nature. I think that's a good way to think about it. We're not captive to our sin nature any longer. But think about the Gnostics of John's day. You know, They taught and they lived as though the spiritual realm was good and pristine and righteous. And all that was physical what was bad and, and sinful and polluted. And so you see how this doctrine could have been prevalent in that day. The Gnostics, they would say, well, we've received this, this revelation, this spiritual insight and understanding, and we've been transferred from the physical to the spiritual, and now we're good. Now we do not have sin. John says, if you say you don't have sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. That's the outworking of this heretical idea. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What does deceive mean? The first definition that came up in one of the dictionaries that I use is lead astray. Deceive means to lead astray. If we say we not have sin, we lead ourselves astray. We lead ourselves down a destructive, 
dangerous, deceived, and unhelpful path. This path is deceptive because it rejects Scripture. Scripture is clear that we will battle with sin, and it's a dangerous path because to say we have no sin, what it must then do, because we do have sin, it causes us to cover up our sin. Or it causes us to not call that which truly is sin, we don't call it sin. Because otherwise, how do we say we don't have sin? It's a lot of words. But just consider how that leads us astray. It leads you to rejecting the truth of God's word or to cover up your sin so that you can stand upon the statement that I have no sin. To sin in the Greek is to miss the mark. And that's the, the simplest definition of the word, to miss the mark. It's missing the mark of God's law. God's law was summed up by Jesus in Matthew 22. What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So back out, make the connection there. If we say we have no sin, that means we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves perfectly at all times. That's the outworking of saying you have no sin. The only outcome of that, if that is the ground to which you hold, is that you're going to shift the blame or the responsibility or the accountability of your sin to someone or something else. It will always be someone or something else that caused you to do this thing, therefore you still don't have sin. That's the outworking of this. That's why this doctrine leads us astray. That's why it's destructive. That's why it's heretical because it makes you undermine and undercut the truth of God's word and it makes you deceive yourself to think that your sin is not actually sinful. The church is called to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, the pillar and the support of the truth. And one way that we do that, dear friends, is to make clear distinction between battling sin and laziness in sanctification. If we're to be a pillar in support of the truth, we must clearly distinguish between these two things. The one who fights and battles against sin but falls occasionally to temptation versus the one who's just lazy in the walk with Christ. The progress to making that distinction well and in a helpful way, the key to that is progress. Are we making progress in our sanctification? Are you more sinful or are you less sinful? Are you more like the world or are you becoming more like Christ over time, over the course of your life? Are you making progress? Dear friends, we must be clear on this. The church, if we are to hold up God's word as the ultimate truth by which we live our lives, we must clearly identify sin. We must clearly identify what it means to be in Christ and, and how that transforms and progressively changes our lives. Do you see how destructive this can be if we're not clear? Luke 5.32, Jesus said, I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Not the righteous, but sinners. If we say we have no sin, 
Jesus didn't come to call us to himself. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the wicked sinner. We must strive for righteousness, but we must understand that this salvation is not complete until glory. That's why it's called glorification, because you're glorified and you put off all that remains of sinful flesh. So let's press into to verse 10 and, and kind of consider the, the present effects of this. I want to see the blasphemous effect of theological blindness, because ultimately what we see in verse 10 is that this is blasphemy against God. John says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So sin is in the verb form, the perfect um, tense, the active voice, and the indicative mood. It's effectively pointing at this present action that, that comes from the past, that continues into the future, and it's this idea of active sin. And so if you say that you have not sinned, if you say that you still are not battling against sin, what John says is you make God a liar. Past sin makes you a present sinner. Okay, now I, I say that, and in the, in the age of every statement being clipped, I, I say something like that with hesitance, because past sin does make you a present sinner, but life in Christ gives you victory over sin, right? So, so we have to understand that, yes, this is absolutely true. Past sin makes you a present sinner until you go to be with the Lord, but you will have victory. You, you will grow in Christ. And, and so I do want to make clear here to apply this to us, friends. We must make sure that our children, in an age where people never want to talk about sin, we need to make sure that our children know that they indeed are sinners. You need to know this truth. Children, you need to understand that you are a sinner before the Lord. You break his law. But there is hope in Christ. Do you all understand that? That you have broken the law of God and you stand guilty before him. You need to be punished for that sin. But he has made a way for you to be saved through Christ. Dear friends, if you have a little one in your home, if you have influence over a little one in your life, make sure they know that. Their sinful nature, but also the hope of Christ. So what's the outworking of this? If we say we have not sinned, John says we make God a liar and his word is not in us. We make him a liar. Think about the clarity of scripture regarding active present sin. Romans 3.23, read it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. To deny being a sinner is to deny God's written revelation. To deny your battle against sin is to deny God's word. And if God is a liar, then his word is not true and he ceases to be God. Make that statement, want to give the true statement that God is not a liar and the whole of scripture is true. Thus, therefore, you are a sinner. But even on top of this undercutting of scripture, we disregard the work of Christ. 
If you say that you've not sinned, you deny your need for a Savior. You deny the work of Christ. Christ came to die for sinners. He came to take the punishment that we earned and deserved. If there's no sin, there is no need for a substitutionary sacrifice. Do you understand that? If you've not sinned, you don't need someone to take the penalty for something that you have not done. Again, let's acknowledge the truth. We have sinned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what John continues on to say, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We don't acknowledge that truth that we have all sinned. And we all have earned the wages of sin, which are death. We don't, we don't understand the free grace of God given in Christ. Eternal life and forgiveness. If you say you've not sinned, his truth is not in you. It does not have a home in your heart. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, what, or, or who can say that I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? Who would raise their hand and say, I have cleansed my heart. I have purified my soul from sin. None can say that. No one but an ignorant fool would stand up and say that they are not guilty before the Lord. Matthew Henry summarizes verses 8 and 10 this way. I think this is very helpful. He said, The denial of our sin not only deceives ourselves, but it reflects dishonor upon God. It challenges His veracity. He has abundantly testified of and testified against the sin of the world. So our sin deceives ourselves and it dishonors God because of his constant, abundant revelation of our sin and his hatred of that sin. To say anything other than what God has revealed is to deceive yourself and to go against his word. Psalm 119, 105 says that the Lord's word should be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ought to let the Lord's word illuminate the path before us to, to shine into our lives, to be that microscope by which we are judged and evaluated. We must let the word of God do its intended work. That means we must admit that we are sinners and that we still battle against sin. We must humble ourselves to the scrutiny of Scripture. And when I say that, what I specifically have in mind is, is that we have to look to the Scriptures as being really, 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 really true. Sometimes we like to, to go and consider our lives and kind of whitewash over some things. We don't like to consider what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not just adultery to go commit a physical act. It's adultery to look at someone with lust in your eyes. It's not only murder to go and commit the physical act of murder. It's murder. It's like murder. It's sinful to have anger in your heart. It's sinful to be jealous. It's sinful to be anxious. It's sinful to be greedy, to love the things of the world. And what we must do with this acknowledgement that we are sinners... We must let the scriptures evaluate our lives, and we must take the scriptures at face value. We need to be wise. We need to let the Holy Spirit do the work 
to look into our lives and, and to evaluate our lives. You think about something like the idea of forsaking the assembling of the church. What does that really mean? If you look around in the world and you really think about forsaking the gathering of the church, how many have done that? I would wager that every church that ever thinks really at this point that, hey, we'll close because it is a holiday weekend. We'll, we'll do virtual corporate worship. That is forsaking the assembling of the saints. Let God's word do its true, vital, and clear work. So we've talked a lot about sin, and I want to come now to the climax of this passage and look at verse 9. Verse 9 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's consider here the saving effect of Christ's virtue. Saving effect of the virtue of Jesus Christ. John begins, he moves in the positive, right? Verses 8 and 10 have been negative. He moves to the positive, what we are to do. He says, we must confess our sins. What is confession? Confess in the Greek is the, is the word homo logeo. Homo meaning the same, logeo meaning to speak or to say, or word it is to speak the same thing, to agree with in full. It's to declare and to admit exactly what another has said. Give you another long quote here from Simon Kistemacher because it gives a very helpful definition of confession. Kistemacher writes, We openly and honestly face sin without hiding it or finding excuses for it. We confront the sins we have committed without defending or justifying ourselves. He says, we're not told when, where, or how to confess our sins, but daily repentance of sin leads us to continual confession. That ought to cut. That ought to dig into your heart a little bit. That to confess is to do so to to honestly assess your sins without defending yourself, without making excuses, without justifying an action that breaks God's law. You're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off, you slam the steering wheel in anger, you blow your horn, you've lashed out in sinful anger. Your confession is, Lord, I'm sorry that I did this because of this action of another. It's, Lord, I broke your law, forgive me. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of your great grace. Forgive this sin that hung Christ upon the cross. Parents, your children learn confession from the way that you confess your sins. And even beyond parents and children, your brothers and sisters in Christ learn about confession from the way that you confess your sin. Do you justify it? Do you make excuses, I'm sorry, but this, that, or the other? Do you defend yourself? Or are you unwilling to openly admit when you've broken the Lord's law? Do you understand that the Lord sees and knows all things, and there's no excuse that's ever going to be valid for him? Do you understand that there's no way that you can hide your breaking of his law because he sees and he knows all 
Do you own your sin? Do you confess your sin? And do you repent of your sin? That's the question. John says if we confess our sins, confess is in the present. It's in the active. It's in the subjunctive mood. You probably understand present and active. Subjunctive mood speaks to something being an intentional action. So do you understand confession is not an accident? It doesn't happen without pointed effort. Now, that doesn't mean that every single day you're going to have a list a mile long of things that you confess to the Lord. Some days you may rightly, I hope these, these ought to be, in one way these should be increasing, but in another way this should not be the common practice of your life, not to see sin to confess. But when you don't know what to confess to the Lord, say, Lord, search and know my heart. And if you find any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way of repentance. Lord, show me my sin. Confession is not merely admitting to making a little mistake. Okay, your, your little mistakes are sins and you do need to confess them. But confession is not this lighthearted, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, just, just please forgive me and moving on. Confession involves the depths of your heart, understanding that you have offended a holy God. You've broken his law, and that sin had to be paid for. That one sin was worth eternal condemnation for your soul, and it was nailed to Christ upon the cross. Confession is a humble heart declaring wholehearted agreement with God and his revealed word. Confession leads to repentance. Repentance leads to confession. Church, hear this. Our duty is to call sinners to repent. Right? That is our, one of our great works is to call sinners to repent. Those who are out from, from outside the church who need to be evangelized and called to Christ, we need to call them to repent. But let's recall that everyone in this room is a sinner and all sinners in this room need to be called to repent. And when we do that, church... When you see a brother or sister in sin and you go to them and you hold them accountable and you call them to repent and then they do repent by the grace of God, you rejoice. You celebrate a sinner repenting. Dear friend, there should be such great joy when you see a sinner turn from sin and return to Christ or turn from sin and come to Christ the first time. That should be the great joy and goal of our life. To walk with Christ ourselves and see others walking with him. If we're to be a confessing people, we are a repenting people. If we're a repenting people, we must call others to repent, to repentance. And when you see someone repent, you must rejoice. You rejoice. And so what happens when we confess our sins? If we confess our sins. John says, he, Christ, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful, dear friends, hear that. He is trustworthy to hear your confession. Again, you're not confessing something that the Lord does not already know. But he is faithful and trustworthy that he will not break out in anger against you when you confess your sin. 
Because again, he already knows that if he was going to break out in anger, he would have already done it. But you are before him confessing your sin, and he's trustworthy to hear that. He's trustworthy to hear that in a righteous way. He's faithful and just. He's faithful and righteous. He is upright, and he will always do what accords with his holy character. That means he will not overlook sin, though he is faithful to forgive it. We must confess our sin because of the character of God, because of the nature of God, that he sees it and he knows it and he is against it. But let's look at his responses. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. Those are descriptors of the Lord. He's faithful and righteous to do what? To forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our sins are forgiven because Christ bore their punishment at the cross. We are cleansed of unrighteousness because our unrighteousness was traded with him at the cross and we were given and credited with and imputed with his righteousness. You're cleansed of unrighteousness because you have Christ credited to your account. Forgiveness, as glorious as it is, dear friends, do you understand that it brings you just to level ground? That before God you are a sinner, unrighteous, condemned by your sin. And and so when you confess your sins, God forgives. You're brought to net zero, but you still must be counted as righteous. So when you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous. He's faithful to forgive, and he's righteous to cleanse. He's righteous to count you righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Do you see the joining of those two? Faithful to forgive and righteous to cleanse. It's because of the active obedience of Christ. That's why Christ couldn't just descend from heaven straight to the cross to bear the punishment. Because we needed a substitute both to receive our punishment and to credit righteousness to our account. He traded his robes of righteousness for our robes stained and soiled by sin. And this is the climactic understanding of the truth about sin and righteousness. We are utterly sinful. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. The truth about sin is that we are sinners. The truth about righteousness is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess based on the perfect sin-bearing sacrifice of Christ, we're forgiven And based on his perfect life, we are credited with his righteousness. That's the truth about sin and righteousness. And how we evaluate all this, the the telling mark of whether or not you are in Christ and are truly confessing your sins, one of the most telling marks of that is humility. Does humility mark your life? The humility to say, I am a sinner. The humility to say, I have broken God's laws in X, Y, and Z ways, and to confess that sin to the Lord, to 
own that sin without excuse? Are you marked by spiritual humility? One day, dear friend, you will stand before the Lord. You stand by Him and you will either be in your own righteousness, standing in your own merit, hoping to be forgiven based on something you've done. And if that's your hope, you will be condemned. You will spend all eternity in hell suffering the just punishment of your sin. There's a second option. That you've confessed your sins to the one who is faithful and just. To the one who is faithful and true. You stand humbly clothed in Christ. You've confessed your sins. You have asked the Lord to forgive you, to save you. You have repented and your life and your heart evidence is the change of the work of Christ. So which will it be for you in that last day? Will you stand in your own sin, upon your own merit? Or will you stand as one who's clothed in Christ? Are you a confessor of sin? Or do you excuse your sin and stand and say, I've not sinned, I'm not a sinner? If that's your heart, if that's your stance, you will be condemned. Dear friend, turn from that. Come to Christ for life. Live for him. Confess your sins and strive to imitate the righteousness of the Savior. Find your life in him. Find your hope in him. Find your joy in him. Openly, broadly confess your sins. Repent of your sins without excuse. And if you confess your sins, dearly beloved, he is faithful and righteous. He's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he does that for the praise of the glory of his name through the grace that he pours out through lives that are then transformed by the Spirit. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And the first step to doing that is to understand the truth about sin and righteousness and to be a confessor of sin. Let's pray. Father, we ask now.